This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. just before 7.30 p.m. on February 9th, 2004, when Maura Murray was last seen. Her car was found damaged, locked, and abandoned on Route 112 just outside of the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Her disappearance has haunted and frustrated family, friends, and a community of people searching for the truth. Since that night, there has never been a credible sighting. You're listening to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. You mentioned that uh, Dick Guy was the first person to, to see the rag in the tailpipe. And then he told Cecil Smith. That is what I was told by Dick Guy when I interviewed him. How did how did he find the rag in the tailpipe? I mean, was he was he inspecting the car? I believe that when they showed up, that Cecil Smith was down either in the Westman's house or down at Butch's house because, from what I remember, Dick Guy and a couple of the fire department people said that that's when. That's when Cecil Smith came back to the scene. So I take that he was at Butch Atwood's. I don't know where else he would have gone and left the car sitting there, you know, unattended. So he must have just driven down to Butch Atwood's house. 
which wasn't that far. He didn't walk. He drove down. When he came back, all the fire department and the EMS were near the car, and that's when Dick Guy said, well, this is kind of odd, and saw the rag and pointed it out to Cecil Smith, and Cecil Smith then told them to pretty much back away from the car, all the fire department, everybody. And I don't know if it was because they found the rag in the tailpipe or some other reason. I don't know that, but that was what they were told. EMTs were only there for about six minutes before they were dismissed from the scene. So now you just have fire department and Cecil Smith there. And then Cecil Smith puts out the be on the lookout, right? At 7.54, he puts out the first BOL only to incoming fire departments is it's put out to it's strange to me that he sees the rag in the tailpipe and it means so much to him that he backs everybody away from the car and then further he tells faith westman that you know there was a rag in the tailpipe so it's so important to him that there's a rag in the tailpipe back away from the car be on the lookout but then they don't even search that area that fred talks about they don't even search where the car was um would that have been would that have been east more east they they only searched right yeah right so if 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 he if this thing happens and it's so important to him why 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 did they just like drop the ball on the search that night and why if if they were so concerned about the fact he knows the rags there and so concerned about it and he thinks there's something why would you especially send away your EMS if you know, we don't know what the rag's all about. You know, you have no real, no clue at that point in time, but you know that something, you know, is a myth. Something's not right at the scene at right at that point in time. You know, I'd be, as an ex-cop, I'd be going, what the fuck? You know, come on. You know, there's a rag in the tailpipe, you know, and, and all this stuff about, you know, putting that up there to try and commit suicide. You can all just forget that. It's not the way it does that. It doesn't happen that way. Please stop saying that, people, because you just can't commit suicide that way, all right? <laughs> and there's a ton of people out there that will hound this forever and think that, oh, yeah, she was trying. No. No. The rag was put in there for some other reason. I swear it's to cloud the investigation or to plant a seed of some sort. Now, there's been some uh, debate as to when the rag was found, why it was found, who found it. Um, you had a conversation with Fred over the weekend. Can you tell us what he told you about that? Well, as far as Fred goes, I talked to him about the rag. He did state to me that the rag that was in the tailpipe was a rag from the trunk of the car. Uh, it was a hospital towel, a white hospital towel that are usually about this big, and he rips them in half, rolls them up, throws them in the trunk, in the toolkit. And that was actually in the car from when he owned a car, and he just gave it to Moore that way because that was his car before Moore got it. The stuff that was in the toolkit and the towel was all previously from him. Uh, so... Yes, he states for sure, yes, that was the rag, from, so we do know that. The next thing he stated about the rag was that 
I mean, he knows only what the, what we all know of who spotted it first was because of what we were told. So he knows the same thing that I just told you is what he knows. Uh, the next thing I will tell you about the rag is that the car was towed by Lavoie's, and this is where this gets a little bit interesting too, guys, is the car was towed by Lavoie's uh, automotive towing. And he was called to the scene to tow the vehicle that night. Now, I don't know what happened if he was called by mistake uh, because he was not on the roster to be called that week. It was not his week. Um, they change on Sundays. So the actual person that was supposed to be called would have been Dick McKean from Northland Towing in Woodsville as well. And while Lavoie, while Mike Lavoie was at the scene with his tow truck, Dick McKean, the other tow truck driver, actually came to the scene in his own personal vehicle because he wanted to know why he wasn't called, and he confronted both Officer Smith and Lavoy, pretty much saying, "Hey, look, you know, I'm losing whatever 100 bucks for a tow or whatever. You know, I want my money." So that was his basic concern. So we have that weirdness there of why Lavoy was called and not McKean. And then the next thing I would say about the rag was, if Smith was so concerned about this rag after it was mentioned, it was as if it was nothing because it was put onto the flatbed, the, the rag was left in the tailpipe, the rag was not protected in any way, it wasn't covered or, you know, anything to protect it from the elements on the ride to the to the place where it was kept. So that's that's a problem with me as well, if you were trying to, you know, maintain any good evidence if there were any. Now, the vehicle was, and I learned this, which I, have, I did not know until Saturday. Uh, I asked Fred, I said, so where, where, when did you first see the vehicle? And he, the first time he ever saw the vehicle in New Hampshire was on Friday morning, it was the first time they ever took him to the vehicle. He went to, turns out, Mike Lavoie's personal house. In the, and he was in the garage with his other personal car in his own personal garage. It was not brought to his shop, which I find another big oddity. What? Yeah. How often would that happen? I can see you, right, I can see you driving home that night and if, you know, leaving it on the flatbed and bringing it to your house and then the next morning, you know, driving into work with it, which is... 10 minutes down the road and leaving it at the shop. But I cannot see bringing it to your house, unloading it and put it in your garage and it being there for four days until Fred saw it. Makes no sense. All right. Now, this is where it gets even better, guys. Fred goes into the garage with uh, Lavoie and the police and the first thing Fred does was grab hold of the driver's side door and it opens right up. It's not locked. So Fred thinks, oh, okay, well, I thought the car was locked. And he looks in the back seat and there's the, uh, the big duffel bag that's in the back that had all of her stuff in it 
all that stuff has been dumped out on the back seat. And he goes, oh, what, you know, what's going on here? And he said, oh, well, we just dumped all the stuff out, took pictures of it to, you know, to categorize it or whatever, you know, to catalog it. And Fred's like, oh, okay. So then he, he goes, oh, well, I'm going to, you know, I want to see if it'll run. So he went and he found the hidden key that he had hidden on the car. And he went back to the, get in the driver's seat in the cop. Like, don't know who the the cop was with him. He couldn't remember. Doesn't matter. Said, oh, the rag's still in the tailpipe. So it probably won't start with it in there. You might want to take that out. They instructed Fred to take the towel out of the exhaust. Who did? The police. They said, if, if it won't start with that in there, you're going to have to take that rag out. You're going to have to take that rag out. Fred went to the back of the car. He took the rag out. The cop who was there with... He it to the car. The one who was with, there with Fred at that time said, oh, you have to take the rag out. Not he, he didn't just remove out. it real quick and let Fred start it. He said, oh, you have to take the rag right. out before you start the car. Yep. And Lavoie was there as well? And Lavoie was there as well because it was at his garage. And... I mean, the next thing is Fred got in and turned the key and the car started up. So the car was startable, even with the airbags deployed, and actually moved the car out of the garage, just drove it out. They let him drive it out of the garage, and then they they put it back in. But it was drivable, startable, and drivable. Did, Did they take the rag from Fred at that point? What happened to the rag? Fred gave it to them, and I don't know what happened to it. No, I, I don't think anyone does. One would hope that it's in some type of evidence, but... Well, I mean, after you've let the father, the tow truck driver, uh, you know, once you've let them touch this, like, what's the point in putting it in evidence of that? You're like, what's the point, you know? The mailman, the milkman. The mailman, yeah, you know. <laughs> right. So after 12 years of investigation, how did it come up for the first time over last weekend with Fred, where the car, um, where the where the car was at, the whole scenario of taking the rag out of the tailpipe, how was was it just like everyone was focused on finding Mora at the time, and and no one you know no one thought to ask that question. But I just in my head maybe the rag in the tailpipe was such a huge mystery. Maybe it didn't seem like a huge mystery back then, but it's just funny to me that for the first time in twelve years. All of a sudden, Fred's like, oh, yeah, they told me I could take the rag out of the tailpipe because I wanted to start the car. Just that never came up in the investigation before. I, I have to agree with you. I mean, I, you know, uh, the only thing I can tell you is that in the beginning, of course, yeah, we were trying to concentrate on finding more. I, I think, I mean, I know I assumed that once I knew there was a rag in the tailpipe, what I told you previously was, in my experience, that would have been evidence. It would have been taped around with a baggie, you know, whatever, to protect it from the elements, you know, and been protected. Everything would have been protected. So, you know, I think pretty much all of us figured that, you know, that early on, it was things were done correctly and that it really wasn't a worry. As far as where the vehicle went, I always heard that it was at his garage. Now, you know, 
the man owns an automotive garage, so I figured that's what they always meant. I never thought to clarify his garage. Oh, do you mean his home garage? But when I said that yesterday or Saturday when I was speaking with Fred, I said, so, you know, when you saw the car, you know, was it outside at his, at his, uh, at his garage? And he said, oh, no, it was inside at his garage. And I went, oh, because I'd always heard that it was outside. He says, no, it was, it was inside at his personal garage. And he came out and he said that, and that, that was when it really blew my mind because I never knew that it was at his personal garage. I think that is a really wild fact that it was at his personal garage. But uh, Lance, I want to kind of almost attempt to answer your question too, because uh, I think what the family knows and what the police know, uh, I think w- what they know together are is somewhat similar. And you know, people like us and John Smith, you know, we don't know all this information. And the detail about Fred taking the rag out. Why do we need to know that information if the police know it and Fred knows it and the rest of the Murray family know it? What good is it for us to know it other than just so we're satisfied about that part of the mystery that he, you know, he, what do they care about our, you know, entertainment about how we fit this puzzle piece, you know? And I, I feel like there are countless facts like this in this case that the family doesn't care to talk about publicly. I wasn't saying it from a perspective of the family talking about it. I was wondering how the group of investigators who were working on the case didn't 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 have that uh, information. Maybe they did. I don't know. At this point, you know, I, I maybe back then it just it, it wasn't a big deal because if you're the family of Mora, you know that she didn't go there to kill herself, right? You feel pretty strongly about that. Um, you feel pretty strongly that she wouldn't run away without telling all of you. You know, maybe there's one or two percent chance, or maybe a little bit more or less here or there. So, if you're the Murray family, and correct me if I'm wrong, they believe foul play was definitely involved here. Why would they consider that people out there are questioning the family's motives? Do you know what I mean? It's like if you know Mora was murdered, or if you feel so strongly about it that that's the case why do you give a shit whether to clear your name to you know people like us yeah i mean i think it, it's it's something that we've talked about before yeah it's something we, we've kind of talked about off air yeah exactly and it's uh you know it's something that that we didn't even realize until we started getting really deep into it um exactly if you if they if they have one belief and they have information that is giving them you know, enough cause to believe one thing. Yeah. Why, why do they need to go out and, and, you know, clarify things for, you know, for us. Um, and, uh, that, yeah, it's a, it's a, but at this point we do have a group of people out there who can actually do like good with this. So I guess right now we do need this clarification so that we can put our energy in the right spot. And I think, a good time for me to say this is right now is that, you know, I think that a lot of this information is going to become more fluid to us because of, you know, the, the new contact that we have, or should I say that you really have, that you've made with the family, yourself, personally, you guys is going to make information flow better to us, you know. And I'm not saying that they've been hiding information from me. 
but like I say, that information that you just talked to me about, you know, it's just like I always, it was one of my, it was my problem because I made, I'm making an ass of myself because I assumed, you know, I just assumed that it was treated as evidence. I just assumed it was taken out by police. You know, I just assumed that the car was still locked. You know, I just never thought to ask anything because that's what I assumed this whole freaking time, you know, and Saturday I cleared that up for me. I, I said to, that's the same thing I said to Fred. I said, no freaking way. Why was it at his house? So, you know, I'm just learning stuff after 12 years. And, but I think, like I say, with, with this new, um, relationship that you get going on, I think that we'll learn more things, you know, that we'll be able to pick apart. Um, I think the most important part about the rag that just still needs to be mentioned, even though I don't know what it really means, is just the fact that they made Fred take it out of the exhaust. Troubles. Yeah. You know, why would they make him do that? I mean, you know, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't do that. It's unless they felt that it didn't matter at all. That what? See, that's the thing. I mean, he mattered Saturday or Monday night, but now on Friday it doesn't matter. You know, it's just like it's just a rag in the exhaust. You got to take it out to start the car. So, if the police didn't know who committed this crime, and I, you know, I'm assuming. Uh, they're treating it as if it's a crime at, at this point in the investigation. If they didn't know who abducted Mora, then why would they let him touch it? Because his hand is going to sully evidence that may have been put there by someone who potentially abducted Mora. And if they if they know who did it, <laughs> it, it almost makes more sense to almost have something on Fred. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I know this might be taking a leap, a little bit of, uh, you know, heading towards that conspiracy theory realm again, but what else would be the reason? You're tampering evidence. Well, I think that another thing that you have to look at is that on Wednesday morning, when Fred and Billy arrived in in Haverhill, New Hampshire, they were taken to the police and they were questioned, which, yeah, I agree, you know, that that needs to be done. But police were pushing the suicide thing and said to him, you know, look, we found a rag rolled up in her tailpipe and everything. And, you know, we're pushing that on Fred and everything. You know, and Fred's statement was, well, I, you know, gosh, I hope she didn't come up here to commit the old squaw walk, which is something that I guess is an old Indian suicide term or whatever. And they ran with that. And, you know, it's just something that's been in his family forever. They used to say that when somebody committed, oh, they committed the old squaw walk, you know, and they, the cops ran with that that night, you know, or that, that day when they were talking to him. You know, they, they said, oh, well, she, you know, she must be suicidal. And, you know, why would she be up here? Why did she do what she did? And that's when they kept, you know, that was when they were really pressuring about, well, what happened down there that would make her suicidal? So they were really, on Wednesday, they were pushing the suicide issue. Right, and, and the thought of doing it with the towel in the tailpipe is just ludicrous. 
And then, as you say, I, that's not, you know, that's not what happened. I mean, she didn't walk into the woods. You know, there's not been any track scene. There's not been anything. Unless, unless somebody picked her up that scene and drove her, I don't know, 100 miles away, and she said, okay, I'm fine here, let me out. And she did something to herself someplace else, and we haven't found her body yet. Well, maybe. But if she just walked away from the scene and did that in any close proximity to there, you know, we searched those places, those roads, those snowbanks. There was no, like, you know, footprints going into any place or any odd, weird spot. So it just... It just doesn't seem like a feasible thing in my book, that's for sure. Do we have any idea how often Mike Lavoie took cars to his own garage? Is that something that happened more than once? That's a damn good question, and I'd like to know. Uh, it's also, at, the po- at that point in time, he was the fire chief for Haverhill Corner Fire Department um, as well, and his house is right near the fire department, the Haverhill Corner Fire Department. I mean, it wasn't put in the it wasn't put in the fire department garage, it was put in his personal garage. And again, I, like I said, I can see I can see you bringing it home with you if you didn't want to go all the way to the garage at night and unload it, leave it in the driveway and do it in the morning. You know, because it was nine o'clock at night when he left the scene pretty much. So he probably wouldn't have got home till nine twenty, nine thirty. So, yeah, I can say, oh, yeah, I'm just pulling here. What's the big deal? You know, no one's going to bother the car. I mean, that's the way these people think, you know. Buenos Dias World from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buenos Dias World from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buenos Dias World from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Why would anybody bother the car? The driver doesn't know where it's going to be. You know, she wouldn't know to be able to come and get stuff out of it. She doesn't know where it is. So why would it be put in his personal garage? That's a damn good question. And it's one that I want answered. And for four days? For, yeah, because Friday morning was when Fred saw it. So Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. Yeah, four nights. And at that point in time, 
the rag was still in the in the tailpipe as well as the the stuff was still in the car as well. And it obviously wasn't searched that well if Fred took a hidden key that they kept on the car to start it. Wouldn't you think that that would be part of the procedure to look for a key? If you if you're going to open the door and like go through the stuff? Well, especially, you know, if it wasn't if it was locked, you know, I mean, you're definitely going to need the key to open the door. Uh, now, if our witness statement, uh, Susan Champion's statement is correct and the door to the vehicle was open, and I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with what a Slim Jim is, but, you know, it's just a thin, flat piece of metal with little notches in the end, and you slip it down between the and the rubber on your window, put it down in there, and you can go click, click, and you can open pretty much any door on any car. And you can do it in about 30 seconds, 25 seconds. Uh, and most police officers carry those because they have to go on lockout calls all the time. That's, you know, they do that as a service. So we can we can safely say that that car was left unattended um, Tuesday, Wednesday, and part of Thursday. Like, untouched. Rag was still in the tailpipe. The, the key, the hidden key was never found. Other than their, them uh, taking pictures of the uh, belongings in the back seat. Nothing was bagged for evidence. Right. And that's what Fred said, Fred, that they took, he said, we dumped it out so we could take pictures. They never, I don't think he said that they, I don't think he did say that they, uh, they cataloged it. I think he just said we dumped it out and took pictures. So I don't think any of that stuff was, you know, totally put into evidence at any point in time until, I, I don't even know when, days later, I would imagine. Here's the video from Unsolved Mysteries of Fred Murray. Hello, folks. My name is Fred Murray. My daughter, Mara Murray, disappeared in 2004. I can't tell you much about my daughter, Mara, without sounding like I'm bragging. She's a kid who never gave her parents any trouble in her entire life. She was the sweetest kid. She's just a joy to have known, and I want her back. When Mara graduated from high school, she thought that she'd pursue her career in the Army, so she went to military school and she majored in chemical engineering, but the military life wasn't for her. It just didn't suit her personality. So she left the military school and enrolled in the state university and got herself into the nursing program, which is really hard to do. It's an excellent program. She came in midstream in the middle of the year. I was very, very proud of her for doing that. Things were, were really looking up for her. Mara's been missing since February 9th, 2004. She was last seen on Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire, and she came from Amherst, Mass, where she was going to school. I, I have no idea why she why she left, and it was on Monday night, but it's pretty clear to me where she was heading. She was headed to Bartlett, without any question in my mind, because that's the area she knows. She's known it all her life. She goes three or four times a year. She even called a place where we've stayed before in Bartlett, but uh, she didn't make it. She didn't get there. She was going around a more than 90 degree turn in slippery conditions. What I think happened is that the car stalled out. The car that Mara was driving was due to be replaced the next weekend, and she wasn't supposed to be driving the car. 
I don't know why she did. It was running in three cylinders. When you get it going fast, it would run well. When it was slow, it would buck and it could stall, especially going around a corner where you had to slow down quite a bit. She slid off the road into a ditch with a big snowbank in it and couldn't extract the car. A uh, school bus driver who lives in the neighborhood within sight of the accident came by, talked to us. She refused a ride to his house and didn't want the police call. She said she already called. It's kind of doubtful that she did because there was a spotty phone reception up there. She was seen at the car about one to two minutes before the local police arrived. This was about 7 to 7.30. A lot of conjecture about the time. The borderline for the next town where there's no police coverage other than the state police is 150 yards up. It's just where the, the street that Murrow was on bends a corner. Almost nobody living down there. There's no one to ask for help, no place to hide, no place to run. You're by yourself with high snowbanks and a narrow road. You're at the mercy of what comes along. The local police came from the west, so if she had gone back towards the west, walking away from the car, they'd have seen her. So she had to go east. It's the only way, and none of these guys went east. And the state police officer on his road, on his beat, this is now his case. Late Tuesday afternoon, my daughter Kathleen was notified. It was too dark to go up and do anything, but I got there Wednesday morning at dawn, and the commander of the local state police troop and his chief detective said, we just heard about this. I said, what are you talking about? You had an officer at the accident Monday night. This is Wednesday morning. That's 36 hours. That's the whole case. It's cold now. You had an officer there on his beat. My daughter's actually breaking the law. She left, she had an accident and then abandoned the car. It appears my daughter's head hit the windshield because it was a spider hole crack on the driver's side on the windshield. And evidence of possibly drinking, maybe wine. Here you've got someone that's possibly drinking, possibly injured, and she's out in this freezing cold in a strange place. It was the worst moment of my life. I'd love to know what brought her there and why she was going and all that, but any plan she had was out the window. Now she's in an accident. She's on foot. She's in danger. She's defenseless on this road in the dark. There's no place to run. There's a river there. There's high snow banks, two feet deep snow. She is a sitting duck by somebody. Now that was 11 and three quarter years ago. To this day, we have never heard one word about what the state policeman on duty that night we don't know what he did. He's never said what he did, but something happened to my daughter. And somebody is what I think. Now, you can see the effect it's had on me. And I, I need help. And I am so totally frustrated. The best place by far to find out all about the case, go to moramurraymissing.com. And if you have information, get in touch with admin, A-D-M-I-N, at moramurraymissing.com. That information will get to me. Tell us anything you want to tell us. That's number one. The number two thing you do is call the FBI and try to get them to take it. The number three thing you do is call the New Hampshire State Police. That's my daughter. I can't go away. I've got to find her. One of the first things that kind of sticks out to me there is that he says, do do one of three things, email admin at com, go to the FBI, or go to the police. 
And the state police, who is supposedly, you know, handling this case, is third on the list of, of people to go to. I mean, <laughs> if that doesn't scream uh, he doesn't trust the state police, then I don't know what does. Almost like almost like he just needed to, like, throw it in there. You know, like, I can't tell, you know, it's a, you know, if someone has information on her, um, yeah, I guess I gotta give the uh, state police, you know, information so that they can contact them. One of the things that I want to put to bed right now before people start like analyzing this, um, when he says, uh, I believe he says uh, she was one of the sweetest kids you would have known, just using that past tense, I know we're going to get a lot of people saying, he says, have known, like he knows she's dead or he knows that, you know, I just want to put that to bed. I think it makes sense what you're saying. And uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, John, you know better than, than Lance and I, but uh, from the family's perspective, they're, they seem about 99%, 99% and some change sure that Mora is deceased. And I think, again, maybe I'm going on a limb, but I think maybe the reason they haven't declared her dead is because they're holding out that you know, point blank percent chance that she is still out there somewhere. Well, that's your, you just hit the nail right on the head. And Fred will go to his grave before Mora is declared dead. Uh, and it's not because he doesn't believe that she is, because I believe that he believes 99.9% that she is. And it's just from his gut what he's heard and what he believes. And, you know, I think that's, you know, people have to, I know people analyze stuff and, and grab onto that stuff and just say, Oh my God, you know, oh my God. Well, you know, this is a person who's had 12 years to come to that realization. It's not like this happened six months ago. So, you know, if he had said that six months into it, you know, I'd be having a problem with him, too. On the other hand, no, I don't. Uh, you know, now, another thing that he mentions in this is the New Hampshire State Police and, you know, their involvement. And, and that's one thing that I forgot to talk about was, and it's not in my timeline, is the fact that John Monahan, Trooper John Monahan of the New Hampshire State Police was on the scene that night for a little while, I stopped off but did not sign off and actually was helping when Butch Atwood came back, was helping Butch Atwood look for footprints um, per newspaper articles. And that's all on my blog now at this point in time. Um, so that is available to see. So, you know, and, and another thing about that, video that we just listened to is that was how many ever minutes out of an hour and 10 minute interview. And there's a lot more about than him just throwing in the state police thing, you know, not doing their part that night at the end, because that's all it's of course that's all edited. You know, the whole thing is edited together. Uh, so I think what we really need to do is, he, like I said, he's working on getting that video, and we'll be able to listen to it in a more, you know, private setting ourselves and go through it and be able to 
really hear what he had to say. And I think it'll really, you know, because we talked about it quite a bit, Fred and I did, and I think it'll really give you guys a much clearer picture of what he's looking at, why he wants the FBI involved, and, you know, and that's a, a big thing. Now, I'm sorry I'm rambling on here, but the other thing is, that when he states that she was headed to Bartlett and he and he's pretty much sure that is, you know, I've often said, well, why, you know, how could you know that for sure? And, and I understand that that was her familiar place. Now, he did say to me this weekend when we were meeting was that they always used to come up I-93 because they lived on the east coast of Mass, not uh, on the Amherst side. So they, whenever they came up here, they would always take I-93 up end up in Lincoln and they would go hiking in Lincoln, go over to Bartlett and hike that way. So I just want to clear up that a lot of people think that, you know, how could she crash in this area? She must have known somebody in this area. Uh, Maura had never been to this side of the cank or on this part of Route 112. She'd only been to Lincoln and the Kangamanga. She'd never been on this section of Route 112 over in the Woodsville area. They, they'd never come up 91. So that's something that people think that, you know, oh, she would know where she's going and whatever. And Fred thinks that, you know, she just left college because that's where she was over on that side, ended up coming up 91, and that's why she took 112 was because she was headed to the Kang the way she knows to get to Ireland. So that right. all makes sense. But I just wanted to make sure that people knew that, she wasn't familiar with this area. We didn't never considered that when she would go up to that area before, she would go from her house in uh, eastern Massachusetts, and 93 is right there. It's a straight shot on 93. Right. Right. So this was this was unfamiliar to her. Yeah. And unless we have the tandem driver, the red truck, we have that whole scenario, uh, unless someone that she was going to college with was familiar with somebody in that area, which, of course, we don't know either. That's something that I've always tried to dig into. Did she have a college friend that was from up here or had a relative that was from up here, and that was would be why they were, why she was where she was at. But now it makes more sense to me that she was probably just driving through. She was just passing through. One thing that stood out in the video to me was Fred, I believe, said, uh, there was an implied accident at this corner. I don't think he stated, you know, she crashed her car there. He sort of stopped short of that. So does Fred actually think Moore crashed her car there? No, he does not. Um, of course, he knows that the damage is not consistent with the tree hit that's been said to have happened there. He's not savvy on you know the vehicle when a vehicle gets hit something how it gets damaged or whatever you know and and that had to be pretty much explained to him and he was like oh yeah well yeah i I understand now what he thinks happened i'm not exactly sure because i mean he does know about the 705 scanner calls uh but of course that's all still iffy for all of us you know been trying to put this together for all these years and i don't think he has an exact theory on what he thinks actually took place other than the fact that his daughter was taken by someone. He definitely doesn't feel like anything happened in mass. He feels like she was taken here in New Hampshire. So, Yeah, I just think it's pretty weird that 
the police have said one thing and they wrote reports about one thing and the Murray family who has been in contact with the police for 12 years now think a completely different thing. If Maura never crashed there, which the original police report states that she did, filed six days later, if she didn't crash there, what what happened? What have we been talking about for 19 episodes? I don't think that the car drove from Amherst to New Hampshire damaged. Uh, if it did, maybe it did. I mean, I, I don't know. I would be surprised if it did. Could it have left Massachusetts like that and spun out on the corner and just ended up, nothing really happened there, just spun out and ended up going the wrong way? Good possibly. How did the damage happen to the Saturn? I don't know. We know it didn't happen from her hitting a tree because of accident reconstructions. So, you know, and they pretty much said that they it hit a solid object or a stationary object or a solid object that that would have been that height. They've never stated that it was consistent with hitting a person, neither one of the constructionists. So, you know, I'm pretty sure that we can rule out the Vasi hit just from those statements along with the timing of her work and everything and the timing of the phone calls. You know, to me, you know, it doesn't make any sense. You know, if he got hit at 12.15, she was supposed to be getting out of work at 1 o'clock, and the Vasi hit it happened at 12.15. Well, somebody's saying, well, maybe she took her 15-minute break at 12.15. Oh, well, why would you take your 15-minute break 45 minutes before you're going to go, you know, when right. you're done at 1 o'clock? So, I mean, I don't know. Not saying it didn't happen. Not saying she didn't have to say, I got to run out. Karen, can you... But Karen didn't watch the desk for her. I mean, you would think Karen Mayotte would say, oh, I let her go and I watched the desk for her. Right. I just think it's it's weird that I think all three of us agree here that Morris Carr didn't hit the tree right there in that corner at that at that moment. So we don't know where the damage came from. We don't know what happened. But all we do know is that the police report is wrong. That's all that we can say right here now for sure right exactly okay so yeah wow that i mean that's pretty amazing because so anyone who's listening and saying oh you know you you guys are assholes for talking about the police or talking about conspiracies i mean again the only thing that we know is that the police report was wrong that's the only thing we know for sure about the damage that doesn't make them guilty of anything else and we're not saying have we stated that they are guilty of anything else no we have not the only thing they're guilty of so far is that report that is not correct. For some reason, they don't have that correct. And that's, that's a key part of the whole thing. Yeah, and it brings us back to where what we were talking about in the beginning, which is either they're covering up for something major that was directly related to Moore's disappearance, or they're covering up for the complete negligence that was shown in the investigation. That could be another good thing as well, another good statement as well, because we have to realize that, you know, and I don't want to go too much into my my conspiracy analyst thing here, but uh, I'm from here. I know the people. I know the players. I know the towns. I know the rumors of what I hear about these people. And 
there's good chance that they did not handle the accident correctly because they're just lazy. They are, it really didn't matter to them. You know, it was like, ah, it's nothing big. Uh, possibility that, I mean, you know, I mean, we hear stories about these guys all the time. You know, they're always out and around with women, you know, they're not where they're supposed to be. So something that they did wrong that night, they, they did not investigate thoroughly. And two days later, they're really realizing that, oh, shit, we have a big problem. Where is she? You know, she didn't just, like I say, you know, they sit in the police department two fucking days and took three calls and faxed paperwork. They did not go back to the scene. No one saw them there. They didn't go back to any of the local houses to check and ask other people. They only talked to the Westmans and the Atwoods that evening, but they did nothing for two days. lot of information there, Lance. How do you feel about these two interviews with uh, John Smith? I thought they were fascinating. You can hear the frustration come up in John's voice when he talks about the police. Two fucking years. He, you could you, he, you could see it. He was getting he was getting riled up with that. And um, also, I I, uh, I I like the relationship that we've established with him. How he essentially thanks us for putting him in the position to dig deeper because you can tell he's exhausted from it and you can tell that he's kind of bearing the uh the weight of the exhaustion as well from the family you know he can feel that and it's making him more exhausted and sometimes you can't see the forest from the trees and when he thanked us for putting putting him in a place where he can further dig in and deeper and kind of refresh him uh it's uh it's a good healthy relationship and i feel like we're really actually making some progress here we're definitely getting somewhere. And uh, a lot of this information was really fascinating to me. Um, maybe the most, the single most interesting piece of information was that uh, Maura's car was in Mike Lavoie's personal garage for four days. It is maybe the most startling fact that I've heard so far uh, since, uh, you know, reading the Wikipedia page a couple of years ago. Exactly. I think we have to look a lot deeper into the negligence of law enforcement. I, I think it's been mentioned and uh, people know that it exists, but it's uh, for some reason people start focusing more on Moore's past than they do this like horribly botched investigation. Um, it seems to me like they didn't want to admit that it was even an investigation into something perhaps criminal until, like Fred said, until the case was cold 36 hours later. And even after that, it was like they were trying to make up for or find excuses for why immediate attention wasn't brought to that area, the search area, the the accident site, and preserving what could possibly be evidence. One thing that I'd like to find out, and it's something that we just didn't have time to get to with John, is uh, whether or not the the road that's right next to the old weathered barn, I believe it's Old Peter's Road, there's, there's homes down there, and there's a dilapidated house down there that I've actually been into. Um, 
And the next time we talk to John Smith, maybe he can fill us in a little bit more uh, in between the episodes and we can fill everybody in after. But uh, whether or not that that road was properly searched or that house, that's uh, probably about, I don't know, uh, 100 yards down from the accident site, down that small road. Also about the investigation from the New Hampshire State Police side, we have heard that they their file on the Maura Murray case is the largest file in the history of the New Hampshire State Police. So it's not like they have completely abandoned this investigation. They are working on it. Maybe at this point they're just a little in over their heads. Yeah, that's a great point. And it would be nice to see some fresh blood in the New Hampshire State Police and the cold case unit take over and come in with some fresh eyes. And I know it's been 12 years, but they can still shake something loose if some uh, new energy was put into it. Okay, so just wanted to thank everybody again for listening and for being um, so very productive with this and thoughtful. And uh, wish everybody a happy holiday. We won't be uh, releasing anything before Christmas or the New Year, so we'll uh, we'll be we'll be talking to you guys after that. for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.